right. So today at Vikingology Podcast, we are delighted to welcome to the show somebody who uh, needs no introduction when it comes to studying the Vikings. Uh, that is Jesse Fayok, and he's coming to us from Los Angeles. And he is an archaeologist and historian and specialist in the Old Norse okay. language, which was the language that was spoken by the Vikings. And he is also the author of many publications, many articles, many books, including a couple of my favorites here, Viking Age Iceland, and also his language series, How to Learn Old Norse, the Viking Language. And we'll talk with him a little bit about that. But um, welcome. I should also say you're the director of the Mosfell Archaeology Project, um, which we talked a little bit about in one of our previous episodes with David Zori, who worked with you. Uh, but we'll uh, get into a little bit of that as well, because you spent a lot of time in Iceland working on that site. So welcome. Yeah. welcome. welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's sort yeah. of fun doing this. Yeah, yeah good. Well, so I wanted to actually just start with like um, kind of basics for your personal and professional journey and just say, why Vikings and why Iceland? Ah, uh, uh, you know what? Um, when I was 13 years old, I had one of those summers and um, didn't know what to do as a kid. And I, I found in my father, my father used to read a lot. He had a saga of the Volsungs by William Morris, who was written, you know, in the 1870s and whatnot, which was, so I read it and it hooked me. I loved it. And years later, uh, found myself in Iceland. Uh, I was on the way to Europe. And uh, back then, the cheapest way to fly to Europe was uh, Iceland Air. And so I thought I'd get off the plane and spend, you know, a few days. And a year and a half later, I was herding sheep up on the northern fjords. Oh, jeez. <laughs> We're back to sheep already, CJ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're talking about sheep. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned sheep. I know a lot about sheep. You know. <laughs> Maybe we should have called the show Sheepology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All these experts on sheep. sheep. The art and science of Viking sheep. <laughs> You know, but, you know, the sheep in Iceland are different from other kinds of sheep. Maybe that's what uh, Sig was talking about. Yeah, it is. That they're long-haired sheep rather than uh, yeah. furry little creatures, as you find in most other places. Well, I mean, so little did you know at that point you'd be working on an excavation site for like 20 years <laughs> in that country. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that that's part of it. I always wanted to be an archaeologist. And uh, so I, I'm had a long, I, I lived in France for a while, and uh, my father always wanted me to be a lawyer, so I ended up at the Ecole de Dois, and uh, then I was in Sweden, um, and I spent several years at the university there, and doing Old Norse, and um, archaeology, and anyway, ended up back in the States at universities, and um at UCLA, I'm, I'm also a professor at the uh, Kotzen Institute of Archaeology and have been so for many, many years. And uh, started an archaeological project in Iceland after spending a long time looking around to for a site that I thought would really work with, with all that Iceland offered, sagas and uh, seafaring and um, 
the the culture of, of the land and the narrow valley and whatnot at Mosfet in in uh, near Reykjavik. Well, so I'm going to um, share the screen and show a few little slides so we can kind of introduce some of these projects that you're talking about, and then um, we can, um, you know, dive in a little bit deeper on some of them. Although first, I have to show this. Like, look at here's here's when I first met you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that. That's at UCLA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, UCLA. That was five years ago at the uh, what is it? The Society for the Advancement of Scandinavian Studies. I gave a paper there, and then um, and then David did as well. And then you had a big fet there for your uh, retirement, right? At that time. So right. That was that was fun um, to to meet you. But so. Uh, here is your website, oldnorse.org, so everyone can check this out, and we'll put a link to this in the description of the show, and you can go here and take a look at your various publications, but also um, learn how to, do, to speak Old Norse and the program that you have developed for that, so this is cool, and I love that shot. Did you take this photo? No, I have a friend, Magnus uh, Lingdahl, yeah. who, who's a great photographer. That's and, amazing. And, uh, he he took this, and uh, he's he's got wonderful. These are all his shots, and and he came over and gave it to me. And he works with me sometimes. Nice. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So some people, what are some of our audience? Maybe if you've been to Iceland or Reykjavik, you know that's the Sun Voyager sculpture that's very famous right there on the harbor and in, in downtown Reykjavik. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and then, so this is your latest translation that just uh, became available or a couple months ago, right? So the tale of yeah, that's neat. You know, this is a project I worked on for years uh, at at UCLA. Also, I, I, you know, I'm a professor at the University in Iceland, and I would teach courses in Old Norse. Um, and the question is that how to how to actually teach the language. So I, I have come up with a a series of texts that this is a bilingual with um, vocabulary and notes and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it, it, just looking at it, I rather I rather like it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. This is a rune stone from uh, Denmark, by the way. Huh? Where? I'm going to Denmark. This is I'm a yelling rune stone. I'm yelling going to rune yelling. Stone. I'm going to yeah. yelling. Okay. Oh yeah. They have now it. have it in a glass case and it's out there. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I recognize this little symbol right here because um, it when I talk about runes, it's actually on the um it's on the Danish passport, the yelling rune stone, and then this little image right here in particular, it's down in the corner of the pages of the Danish passport, even still. So I love that the the, the modern Danes are still so embracing their Viking Age history. Yeah, you know, one of the things is, in, in, as you know, I've done these these textbooks, that um, one can do it differently, but uh, and and often they're done by people who are are more interested in linguistics and whatnot. But the rooms are have usually been uh, kept as a course uh, for advanced graduate students and whatnot. But actually, the real language of the Viking is the runes as close as you're ever going to come to the speech of the vikings yeah. and um so i i always teach that right at the start nice yeah actually i have yeah. my students read the uh 
the chapter in your book about the Danish runes um, it, when I introduced the runes. So, um, all right, let's see what next. Okay, so then, yeah, the Amospa archaeological project in that beautiful valley that I also call home when I am there. I love it there so much. And this is, again, this is the project that you worked on for about 20 years. And David Zori, our previous guest, was one of your grad students and worked with you. Kind of, was he co-directing with you on that site? Yeah, well, he started out um, he started out as a, a beginning graduate student with me and then worked several years on this. And then I had a partner, uh, Philip Walker, uh, who was a professor at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And and Phil died, which was really a very sad thing. He was also, you know, one of my best friends. And so David, by that time, had been with us for a while, and and he became the uh, field director, and then worked with me as as a partner on this. Yeah, nice. And you know this, um, and 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 David really is is terrific uh, as an archaeologist. He really knows what he's doing. So the two of us have had a great time, and we're great friends. Yeah, um, so we've got this farm here, right, at, at a place called Reesbrew, and um, I'm just giving another slide here so we can get a sense of that. And so the main things that you were excavating, I've kind of got my arrows here. So this large mound here, and then the smaller area here. Um, so, uh, and then I'm going to show, there you go. So that's what you uncovered there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing longhouse because all the stones and all the foundation structures are there, and it, it's um, almost surely the best documented uh, longhouse. Uh, what, what's happened with a lot of longhouses uh, in Scandinavia is that they were always uh, made near the fields, but the the plow. I don't know if you know about the long. The, uh, I'm sure you do. In fact about in the Middle Ages, um, the, the plows changed and they uh, put a, a, a metal um, yeah. shear in front so that it's called the plow zone. And that went much deeper. And most of the longhouses were buried uh, and the long plow went over them so that we really have just post holes. But here, as you can see in this, all of the, the stone foundations, you can tell where the doors are, you can see the fireplace, um, is a great project. So how were you tipped off that this might be there? Um, that I used a, a, a saga, Eil saga at the very end, um, speaks about how Eil Scotland Grimson, the, the warrior poet, who's, who's the uh, hero of this great saga, um, they said that he uh, lived at this place in his old age and he was buried there. And then there's always the controversy that goes on in Iceland that they're, they're really literature and they're not history. So, so no one actually went out there as an archaeologist. Uh, and um, I went out there and talked to the farmer who said, you know, he was great. He said, well, you know, he's not an educated man or anything like that. But uh, he reads the saga. So I said, where do you think it is? And he said, oh, just behind the stable. It's called Kirkjuhok, which means church knoll. Mm. So we went up there and there was the church and then later the longhouse. So it's either, uh, you know, rural knowledge or uh, maybe uh, oral knowledge going back many centuries. 
So you weren't necessarily trying to um, make the, you know, do that. What's what's the cardinal sin of like historians and are to make the uh, the evidence fit the uh, the, the thesis? Um, so trying to make sure that that the, the the saga was true, or were you like just sort of digging and then sort of hoping for you know whatever was to come of it was to come. Well, you know, uh, one can debate what this is, but um, uh, the saga names that this place was Hrisbru. Now, the question is where you find it on Hrisbru, which is a large farm. Yeah. So um, I just decided we would uh, trust the saga. The question about archaeology is where you dig. You know, you can spend years putting holes in the ground and coming up with nothing. The real trick is to really find something. Um, and you can miss something by less than a foot, yeah. and uh, you have nothing. So I spent a long time uh, looking for a valley, looking for a uh, site, and a site that had some historical uh, importance. Um, if the saga is reporting some sort of accuracy, then this was a great chieftain's family and that it would form part of the history of Iceland. Uh, up to then, it, it hasn't. Um, so we went out to Riesbrug, and here's a, a really high status, magnificent uh, longhouse with the church that's mentioned in the saga, right at the site that's mentioned in the saga, with a graveyard, which is mixed Christian and pagan. And then there's a cremation site there. So it's got everything on the Viking Age including it's in a defensive site on the side of a mountain uh, overlooking um, the uh, coastal mouth of the valley where the sagas also say there was a Viking Age harbor and sure enough it's there. So one has to decide what the value of, of trying to uh, understand what the, the validity of the sagas uh, is. My view on this whole thing is that sagas get very much into personal life. So you have men and women whispering to each other at night in bed. Well, you know, who knows what they really whisper to each other. But when they tell you something is at a place in a valley, um, surely the people in the 1200s understood what was there in the year 1000. So do the modern Icelanders understand what was there? I'm trying to, I'm thinking about- No. No, uh, you know, the, the farmer was sure it was there. Okay. But, and he told me that he and his father and his grandfather tried to talk to every educated man. We, we had this wonderful conversation. He was, he was in the tractor <laughs> and I was out, I went out in the field and he, he, he stopped and, and the tractor's going, boom, 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 boom. He has a cigarette in his mouth, you know, and he, we're talking and I'm yelling up to him. Uh, he didn't speak English, so we were speaking Icelandic. And um, he takes his cigarette out and he sort of points to me. He said, yeah, you know, my father and grandpa and all that. And he said, now you're here. He says, okay, let's go take a look. So we did. So and he and I became great friends. And he just passed last summer, I think. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, my friends and, I live with in the valley there, they all went to school with his kids. And so they all know each other there, as you know. Uh, and she was the one that mentioned to me last year that, that he had passed away. But uh, uh, 
right? Olavur was his yeah. name, Olavur Ingimundersson. Yeah. And the, the fellow that you're talking about is Andreas. Yeah. Olafsson, you know how the Icelanders use the, the, the names. The um, you know, so this became a, a really large excavation. Uh, it's, it's rare to uh, stay, for archeologists to stay in the same spot. And what we did is we, we are exploring an entire valley and we you know ended up with permits for that which is quite wonderful yeah one of the things that people can do on the website that i just showed and we'll link that up as well is you know you've got these great you know field reports for year by year going all the way back to the beginning in 1995 and so it's really cool to kind of follow the progression of it um but what was the first part like what what like the first corner the first stone something where you're like oh my god it's here what what, what happened well, um, the, the saga has this wonderful uh, description of a, a burial, and it's a burial of Ayat. And uh, they they say that, he, you see, Ayat was supposedly um, a great warrior poet. And, and you know, there's some people th thought maybe he didn't exist because all you have is a, is a saga. And they say that he was buried in the first, he dies, if you if you do some chronology and 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 these are always pretty well accepted in the Icelandic books, he supposedly died before Christianity, right before about a nine ninety, and uh, the saga says it's at the very end of the chapter that he's buried in a um, pagan burial mound down in front of the farm at a place called Teltanes, and then about ten years later, Iceland converts to Christianity. And the uh, family at the Longhouse, which is a very prominent family, uh, very soon after it's the law speaker of Iceland. His name is Grimur Svertingsson. And, and his wife is Thorgerda, who is Eyl's uh, stepdaughter. And supposedly uh, Thorgerda, and the saga tells us, loved uh, her stepfather uh, greatly. And that's why he was living with them in old age. And um, she wanted him moved to this new conversion church because they converted Christianity and buried in the churchyard. So it tells us in the saga where he was. So that's when the idea came is, you know, if you're going to go look around, why not go to Hreesbrew? Why not go to place? And when the farmer told me that behind the stables, there's a mound called Kirkjuholt Church Knoll that uh, that sort of sealed the deal. Up on church, no, I could see there were uh, ruins and uh, the excavation began. So but what uh, we're doing is, is excavating this entire valley and trying to put the pieces together of Viking life. And there's probably no other valley in all of Scandinavia, which is in pristine rural state filled with uh, Viking age remains. And, up further in the valley, there are ship settings, these, these, these stone settings with ships that look like ships for burial. And then there's a place, uh, all kinds of uh, farm sites and high status, low status. And, and then the question of trade comes in and connections and, and the artifacts that we found. It's, it's been fun. Be just, that valley has just got to be like just full of stuff. I mean, it's just the proximity, the route to the all thing. I mean, just every, I mean, it's just got, 
And when I, I went, David showed me uh, or told me how to find the one uh, ship stone setting um, that's out by the little iron stream, you know, as you, you walk not, not very far past Reesbrew. And I took my friends there who literally grew up, you know, across the street uh, and they, they didn't know it was there. They didn't know anything about it. They thought it was super cool to see it. And I have to go back now. I, I've made it my mission. The damn Lupina is taking over everything there. And, and pretty soon that ship setting is not even going to be visible anymore if you don't know where it is. And so I'm, I'm going to go there and like pull out the stupid Lupin flowers that are. Yeah, up. yeah. You know, that was the extraordinary thing is that the people uh, in the valley uh, knew about a few things, but actually, and they, and they knew about the saga, but they didn't know about the sites. And, and um, the Icelandic Museum in the uh, uh, 1990s had done a survey and they found a few places, but it, it was all really um, unknown. And uh, the way we found the, uh, the ship settings, which, uh, you know, really are a gem of, of archaeology, um, was that one of the farmers mentioned, after you're, you're in a place for a while, either you get along with the people or you don't, we get along real well. Um, they would have come to me and say, hey, you know, I saw something. Uh, so we'd get on a horse and go out there and go around, which is a lot of fun, you know. And um, some of my best friends are in the valley and we, we do everything like have horse races and stuff like that. But we go up there and you, you have to get right on top of it to see the thing. Yes. It's 30 meters long, 10 meters wide, 69 stones. And yet, as you say, the vegetation has, has covered it. So one of the things we did was clear the vegetation around it so that we could really understand it. Yeah, that's uh, the stuff that's still there, like the, the landscape paper or whatever that you got, you know, the, the evidence of you guys having been there across the middle of it. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, that, that's where we, we did an excavation. You know, that uh, that cut that we did down the middle, we were hoping, first of all, Iceland, as you know, has, has had terrible erosion. That area has had a bad erosion. The valley itself is an unusual valley in that it's been a catch basin for soil, and that has preserved so much of the uh, original Viking Age period um, uh, remains. And that too was one of the reasons that um, I chose Moskodal. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, Saga, um, Ail Saga, I mean, it's part of this larger tradition of the Icelandic sagas. Um, and I mean, I, you know, it's always interesting to me, you know, and maybe to CJ too, because he's a writer about the Vikings. But when you look at the stories, um, it, it, it's like, it just begs the question, what's the deal with Iceland? Because it's this small, remote place that's not urban, and yet it has this huge literary tradition and the production of those stories. And I mean, it's sort of like why there of all places, because historically that's an unlikely candidate for such things, right? So why do you think that, that all of these things in this sort of saga tradition came out of there of all places in Scandinavia? Well, um, uh, there, there's something about frontiers and um, uh, migration sites that um, what Iceland really is, is a transmarine migration of people west across the Atlantic. They leave mostly Norway or 
the Norwegian settlements in the British Isles, Orkney, Shetland, and, and Hebrides. And if you look at a map, and there's in some of those books I've done, I have maps, it goes out to Iceland, is that once the people got there, they discovered a rather interesting thing, that the ships that brought them out there, which are a product of the Viking Age, the wealth of the Viking Age, which comes from a lot from trade and a lot from plunder, um, allowed them to have the iron and the, the wood to put into these ships. Uh, the Viking Age ships cost a lot, and, and economics is, is really part of the history that, that we're, we're interested in is there's over 300 kilos of iron in one of these ships. You know, they have nails holding the strakes of the sides together. Um, and when they got to Iceland, Iceland is igneous, it's a volcanic uh, area, different from the uh, sedimentary rock of the um, uh, uh, Scandinavia. So the soil is different, it doesn't produce really uh, the kind of uh, either oak or pine that um, you have in mainland Scandinavia. So they didn't have ships. So you have a culture that moves from one place to another place, and they become, as far as their culture, extremely conservative in remembering what the history of their origins are. And um, Iceland, the other thing is that you mentioned it's little, it's not little at all. Iceland is an enormous place. It's two thirds the size of England and Scotland together. It's 25% larger than Ireland. And it has a very small population, which became quite isolated. And although they're in contact with uh, mainland Scandinavia, um, their culture turns inward. and they build on the culture that they brought with them and become very original in it. Yeah, I think, well, maybe small, maybe maybe not geographically, but um, at that time, I think from a standpoint of, of being urban or not, you know, they don't have big cities or anything like that. And typically <laughs> you see, um, you know, deep, sophisticated literary oh, traditions coming out of more urban places, right? I mean, more developed places. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you totally. And I, I didn't mean to disagree about small. I mean, it's got a tiny population. That's yeah. that's 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 the whole thing. I mean, you know, Ireland has millions of people and, and take England, Scotland, two thirds of it together. And, and Iceland probably had maybe 30, 40,000 people in the Middle Ages in the Viking period. And um, they, they settled around the coast and in these uh, fertile valleys and then erosion sets in and they maintained the culture in which they, they altered the culture that they brought from Scandinavia by, by really one tremendously important part is that at the time that Scandinavia is uh, moving from chieftains to paramount chieftains to to kingship uh the icelanders um made some sort of collective decision it's really quite interesting you know most anthropological um understanding of of how cultures work is that at a certain level of uh social integration you don't know what is to come next because what happens is things happen and then you advance to another stage of, of complexity 
but the Icelanders did something quite different. They came from where the complexity was already moving to kingship, and they they made a, a culture in which they uh, reserved the rights of all freemen not to become aristocrats and kings. And this worked for a while. So that so the chieftains that we have in Iceland, they're really very petty chieftains compared to the chief, the great warlords you have in Scandinavia. And um, they're more like local big men who need the farmers. So um, part of this is understanding their Viking Age origins. And they were very good at this. Uh, you know, they tell these stories and uh, then they get written down. And, and of course, they're much, they're much uh, better in, in when they were written down in literature. But the kernel of all these stories are, are true. And, and you can see the society. And what you really see is how much most farmers disliked their neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, you know, that old Bryce uh, quote that I always tell my students too, right? They come up with this. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Complex system, you know, and, and who would have thought, you know, this amongst men whose chief occupation is to kill one another, right? So, I mean, it begs, I always tell my students, it's like, I think that it's it's a lovely level of self-awareness that they knew that like all right let's not descend into violence because that's what we're prone to so let's like try to get a handle on this and you know at least that's what it feels like to me you know figure out how to live according to the law um but it does beg the question about the violence and cj what was um in our last podcast with leshek what was he saying about archaeology and violence oh he 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 insinuated that through his research, looking at thousands and thousands of graves, that the evidence for the Viking Age being an age of violence is not true. That the in the archaeological record, the evidence for that violence is non-existent practically. To which I push back a little, thinking, well, you know, I think a warrior culture in, implies some degree of violence, <laughs> right? Uh, because the elites in your society are killers, essentially. So, you know, and, uh, uh, but he he said, you know, in the graves, there's just not that, that evidence for the trauma one might expect uh, from, from this being an age of violence, which I found really interesting. It was good food for thought. Uh, but I'm, I'm not entirely convinced, you know, but then again, I haven't seen thousands of graves. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think about that, Jim? I love it. First of all, Lesnick's a wonderful uh, archaeologist and, and he and I were, he was going to be working with us at one time. Uh, you know, uh, you held up a book, Viking Age Iceland. What, what I'm really interested in is how the society worked. And if you're that far in the North and you have to um, maintain a certain level of, of continuity and peace because if you go around and burn down farmsteads all the time and kill everybody, you can't make it through the long, long, hard winter, um, you know, where you store the food and whatnot. So uh, there are all kinds of rules about how you, you uh, deal with violence. And, and th that's something that interests me. And I wrote a book on feud in the Icelandic saga. But, and I had this all worked out. However, the first two graves we uncovered at Mossville, one guy has an ax chopped through his head. 
<laughs> and a, a sword slice on the back of his head and whatnot. And there's a saga that talks about an attack on Mossfeld by a rival chieftain who's the two sons of the chieftain at Mossfeld and this, this other guy had killed each other in a feud and they kill each other there. And, and uh, you know, I, I um, don't want to disagree with Lesik, but I must tell you, I do think it was a violent place. And, and the thing is, there's a, if, if you study feuding societies, and this definitely was a feuding society, and wealth and status was often um, regulated by feud. There are rules to keep it within bounds, but um, you'll find in these societies that an awful lot of young men don't make it past 30. Mm -hmm. And with our, our conversation with Peter uh, Kuznitsky, Am I saying that correctly? Uh, From medievalistbynet.net. Uh, Konechny, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. So yeah. I am not a linguist, but anyway, our conversation <laughs> yeah, with yeah, him about yeah. how those rules broke down in the 13th century, leading to uh, a crisis where uh, the Icelanders had to invite rulership from Scandinavia, which is really interesting. So those rules didn't hold up over time either. Yeah, Peter's a, a he he's um you know he runs medievalist.net this website but he's also a historian and he's he's interested his main area is military history and so he he did it like a deep dive on the Sturlinga saga mm -hmm. and uh -huh. so, yeah. so he, we did a podcast with him and it's sort of talking about how you know this tenuous sort of order you know that you're talking about with the you know establishment of the all thing and everything it lasts for what about 300 years it like starts to fall apart then you know by the time you get to the 13th century right right that's my let, let me just go turn this phone off okay oh it turned off okay um yeah uh, i i i see it um that uh these rules broke down and this level of, of um, all chieftains are, are by law just farmers, you know, and a farmer is a bonte and the plural that's bintur. And um, in Norway, there are many levels of farmers of bintur and then uh, minor um, chiefs and then uh, aristocrats and then uh, um, Hersir, which are um, royal uh, governors and then kings and whatnot. Um, so Iceland uh, didn't have any of that. However, by when you get to, to the 13th century, this uh, Icelandic rules of holding people down so that the level of, of small scale chieftains breaks down and then that the, they have uh, people who would like to become ultimately king of Iceland and, and, and they become Jarls. But um, underneath there's this large um, social layer of farmers who, who eventually take over again. And they bring in the Norwegian crown to stop the Icelandic leaders from taking control. And they make a, 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 um, an agreement with the king and the king then can only go so far. And in many ways, it, it, it depends how you interpret history here. But, and we know a great deal about this, is that the Icelanders are far enough away from Norway that the king's power was not very strong. 
and Iceland in many ways returns to this level of, of farmers with small scale chieftains. Hmm. Never did have a king. Yeah. Therefore, so for a short period, there is a Jarl who um, thought he was in control of Iceland for um, just a few years, and then the king pushes him aside. So I want to go back just real quick. Uh, I, I did have something in, in uh, when we were discussing why Iceland, of all places, was so interested in preserving their history and finding that, you know, and then recording it in the sagas and so forth. And I do wonder, to your point, Jesse, about the this being a migratory zone where people have gone, you know, they've left their homes and gone to this new place. That Iceland isn't isn't especially fertile, or you know, and they they've lost their ship building tradition. And just as somebody who's lived between two cultures and lived between two countries and moved around a lot, you know, looking back at history has been a way for me to piece together my identity where folks who live and are born and live in one singular country or place, like place is a really important part of our identity for the most part, right? Uh, so I wonder if that's if if the the idea of being migrants to this new place is essentially what motivated them to be so interested in their own history to preserve some kind of piece of their identity over the long term so that they wouldn't lose it right and so that these rules would persist to keep things organized just a just a thought no no that, that that's absolutely true and and um you know, there's what they call the founder effect. Uh, the first settlers who came were the founders of the new society, and they brought with them um, structures from Norway. And yet there was one enormous difference, and, and you mentioned it, is the first thing is, is the wood, that so they couldn't build ships. The Viking Age is a period of, of movement in Scandinavia. There are ships, there is trade, there is plunder. May, uh, the main part of the population were farmers, and yet we know that they went a lot of places and they did a lot of things. The settlers who came as part of this culture with ships which are made from the Viking wealth of the Viking age, you know, in, in economic terms, it was capitalized. The migration was capitalized by the wealth of the Viking age, whether it's trade or war. They get to Iceland, they're stuck on the island, the island, and then they had to change their uh, economy because the Icelanders, um, the, there's no growing season in Iceland. So growing, the only thing you can grow is a little bit of barley. Um, they grow hay for their livestock. They're a herding culture. And they, in many ways, um, went back to hunting and gathering along the coast, you know, fishing is hunting and gathering if you're close in the coast. And they would go up, uh, look for birds' eggs and whatnot. So, so the wealth of the Viking Age, which got them to Iceland, disappeared in Iceland. And archeologically, we, we find that we dig up longhouses and the people had a food and they ate and they had, you know, these small scale chieftains and low caste farmers and all that. But we find hardly any artifacts in Scandinavia when you dig up these places, you find gold and all kinds of enormous things. Going back to the Merovingian period in France, uh, in Iceland, the amount of silver that they have found you can hold in maybe two hands. 
so there, there's some beads and things like that. So Iceland was off the trade route because Iceland really didn't have anything that the real world out there in Europe wanted. Norway had all kinds of everything from walrus skins to um, feathers for, for down um, comforters. They, they had tar, which was incredibly important from their forests and whatnot. And um, Iceland had some very low quality um, wool. So you have a culture that, that uh, adopts to the environment. And, and that's something that's, that has interested us as archeologists and historians, is you have a culture that economically devolves. I have and also a, in a sense that it, it stood still, right? Like it's where things kept moving in Norway and through exchange, the society, culture, language start to change. Iceland didn't have that opportunity, which I think takes us to the next question that you're probably going to have when it comes to language. As far as Icelandic, my understanding is Icelandic is the cl most closely related modern language to, to the old Viking language, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, there's the manuscript institute in Iceland, the, the Art and the Magnaian, and one of the scholars there uh, was on TV, I, and I was uh, really interested in this. And he was saying that, well, if he uh, was walking in downtown Reykjavik and he met an ice, uh, a Viking from the 1100, you know, the 11th century, um, he could understand him. And I said, whoa, that's a, that's a, that's a great statement. And uh, modern Icelanders can read the sagas. Um, a lot of the phrases have changed, but you know, in these textbooks that, that I have done on language, one of the things is I uh, about when, when the computer age started, some very clever Icelanders made word frequency of the sagas. And they found out which words were most used and most common. And so I took uh, the 246 words, I divided it into nouns, verbs, uh, adjectives, and whatnot, uh, 50 of each. So I get 246 of the most common words. And uh, those are the ones we teach in the book. And it includes all of the... Uh, you know, the strong verbs and stuff like that. This is a wonderful way because instead of some obscure word, you, you really focus on the language. And with those 246 words, you can almost read a saga. But the, the, the interesting thing about them is every single one of those words are still in modern Icelandic. Now, when you get up to the first 70, are, are things like and and but and, and his and her and all that. Okay, they're not. But after that, you start getting into nouns and it turns out the word for man is the same and whatnot. Then you get into things like king and sword, you know, svarðar and spjót and, and spear and all that sort of stuff. And okay, in a modern Icelander, you know, car and television is, uh, you know, computer has uh, replaced those, but th there's still good words in Icelandic. Horse is still horse and dog is still dog and you know, wife is still wife and man, you know, husband. So every single one of the 246 words that we teach in Old Norse 
is still a good word in Icelandic, and they still decline in the same way and work in the same way. So with this Icelandic tradition, does that mean technically that Old Norse is not a dead language? Yeah, you could say that. Yes, yes, yeah. Yay. So I'm like, because because Latin, because like let's let's take Latin for example. Like we have no. I know you like that, Terry. <laughs> we have no we have no Latin speakers to to draw upon for pronunciation. Uh, there were no Latin speakers for a very long time, other than you know people in the in the church who were reproducing it. So it is a dead language because nobody actually speaks it. So we don't we can't actually know how it would have sounded. Versus, so I don't know if that's if because where we're getting these 246 words is from the sagas and they are the same but would the pronunciation be the same or do we know of any like you know how in english we had the great vowel shift for example which fundamentally changed how we speak uh in the you know in the middle of the kind of in, in the, the last 500 years so is that or is there any way to know if i if modern icelandic has had any of those those changes or or shifts over time from any sorts of causes? Well, the two things you mentioned, and they're both terrific. Uh, one is that um, in many ways, Iceland is, is like, let's say if there were some island lost in the middle of the Mediterranean that uh, we just discovered a few years ago, uh, that was still speaking classical uh, age uh, Latin, um, you know, Iceland might fit into that category, mm. so that would be great. Um, the other thing is that the consonants are absolutely the same. The, ver the, the vowels have changed a little bit, so instead of ah, you say ah and whatnot, and um, very little change there. Now, if somebody spends their life as a scholar studying the linguistics of it, they think the changes are very great. The ah and ah is an enormous and there's a shift and all that. Um, again, go back to the the uh, the fellow from the uh, Artna Magnaian Manuscript Institute, who's one of those linguist types. Uh, I mean, everybody realizes, sure, you can understand each other. In other words, the word for for mother that means man. In in uh, the Viking times, it was mother. Yeah, <laughs> not a big difference. Or is it that they've got what the uh, the U in front of the R instead of just the R at the end of the word? And... Yeah, the spelling is different. The thing is, back then they didn't spell. And and you know what? Um, and, and, and Terry, you know a lot, so that uh, it, it may be hard for the uh, people listening to this. But you spell mother M A and this strange D Ed R in Old Norse, and in modern Icelandic it's M A Ed U R. But I don't know how anybody in the earlier period actually pronounced it without a vowel. So I think in in I mean you're going to be mother. So everybody said mother anyway. So the modern spelling has just taken into consideration the need for a vowel there. So spelling conventions, um, you know, don't always reflect precisely the language. So a couple of years ago when I was there, I was lucky enough that Icelandic government, bless their hearts, let me in during COVID. And uh. so I was there that summer and I wrote a piece um, about 
Iceland's medieval past with the, the Viking Age and the different aspects of Viking Age culture that, that exist now that to me seems like holdovers from that time so long ago. Um, you know, different ways that they act with, the, with each other. You know, hospitality is very important for modern Icelanders. You know, and it makes me think of like the hospitality with chieftains and things. And, but one of the things was the, the language and the linguistic part of it. And um, I, I, so I wrote a little part of the article about the Icelandic Naming Commission or committee, right? Oh, yeah. You know, That's I mean, great. this is the thing that it's very difficult for modern Americans to understand, like, you know, but it's it's this idea of, you know, a, a, a part of the, the government, the national government that needs to approve the name that you're going to name your child, if it's a name other than a traditional Icelandic name or that can be used with the Icelandic alphabet or spelled with the Icelandic alphabet. And I think of it as this kind of cool way of, you know, them trying to preserve culture. Um, and and yet, you know, modern Americans are horrified at the idea of the government being able to tell them what they can and can't name their kid, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I just think it's kind of a cool thing. I mean, what do you think about the fact that they have that? Um, I, I, you know, I think it's great. And, and you know. Countries can do whatever they want, and people can have their culture. And and there's there's some people who want no change, and people who want change, and some that don't want to. I I sort of ran into that, you know, as you know, I, I I'm an Icelander now these days. Uh, and when when they uh, uh, they wanted to change my name, and my father's name was Lester, so they wanted to name it Lestrason. Uh, and I, I, so I would have ended up something like uh, <laughs> Ragnar Lesterson, and I, I just didn't like to do it, so I kept my name. So I said, well, okay. <laughs> you can't have dual, the dual. <laughs> I mean, I could see going through the passport, you know, in the United States, that and, and having two names and, and going directly to jail. So I decided it was, it was not a good idea. Why? <laughs> Why won't they let you have dual citizenship with that? Why would they want you to change your name? That seems kind of strange. To well, me. that that was and it, it was the law for, and that they changed it rather recently. I think it's like fifteen years ago it was changed. Oh wow! Yeah. That's well, probably they recognize that it is special that Iceland's so isolated that they've preserved this language for much longer than other languages or other countries, right? And through globalization and free exchange and opening up to the world, there is something to be lost because through that exchange, uh, language changes. And so then what they've preserved for the last thousand years could very quickly turn into something new and then you would lose. And then and then the old Norse would, would certainly become a dead language by that, you know, by that transition, right? Well, I don't know, I, and I agree with that. But But as far as names go, I mean, there's been a, a large immigration to Iceland now. There's a, a very large Polish population and stuff like that. And, you know, they have their names and what. Um, and all their children learn Icelandic. And there are a lot of, uh, of Vietnamese that have come and stuff like that. Uh, but they retain their names and, and that's part of their culture. And I, I don't think the two actually uh, uh, conflict with each other. No one seems to have any trouble with, with my name it, it even declines you know most people call me jessa and, uh, and yesa and yesa and it changes so anyway it works what do they do with your name terry 
uh, just Terry. Well, be, yeah, Terry. Yeah, just Terry, but yeah, because they roll the R's. It's always Teddy. Yeah, so it sounds, uh -huh. like, it sounds like Teddy, Teddy, like T E D D Y instead of. Oh, oh, they say Teddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. don't say ter Terry and then Terra, yeah, like Terra, Terra. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that to roll the R. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 What would they do with my name, Christoph? Oh, uh, Christoph. Yeah, Christopher. Christopher. Uh, that's 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 a good name. And then you get the good hard no. R at the end, R Christopher. <laughs> You know, uh, I, it had occurred to me that, it, like, I was looking over these these textbooks in the morning, that um, I, I, I might read a little bit of Old Norse and 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 give a little flavor to what it was, and and since we're talking about the difference, and point out what is the difference between Old Norse and and modern Norse, and that. Yeah, if you have a couple of passages, that would be great. Uh, let me see if I I think I had one of the books here. Hang on, let's see. Okay, so this is uh, Viking language. This is just in in the in the first chapter. These books are great too. I highly recommend them as a historian. It's not just a language book about learning language, but you provide a really cool like historical context at the beginning of each chapter. So they they sort of double as history books as well. Yeah, oh, uh, actually, I just opened it up, so I thought I would show. There's a wonderful map. Can you see this of the yeah. Uh, um, yeah. the sailing routes to Iceland, which which are still the sailing routes? Okay, so this is from uh, the Saga of the Greenlanders, um, which is the Saga of the Icelanders who go to Greenland, and it goes Herjolfur var Bárðarson, Herjolfsonar. Herjolf was the son of Bárð, um, the son of Herjolf. And that's exactly modern Icelandic. There's nothing, nothing changed there. Hanvar Frankti, he was a kinsman. And Frankti is our word, you know, um, English and Old English and Old Norse were, were very similar. Um, and we have friend and Frankti is originally your friend is your kinsman. Ingolfs, Hanvar Frankti Ingolfs of Ingolf, Lant Nams Mans, the, uh, a settler, a land taking man. Still perfect modern Icelandic. Ingolver gaf Herjolvi land. Ingolver gave land to Herjol. Which means between uh, the place called Vauk, which would mean bay, and Drepstoki, which is a farm site. Thorgerder, which is a perfect modern Icelandic name, as many people name Thorgerder, yet Kona Hans was the name of his wife. And that also, this is as accurate in modern Icelandic as it is in Old Norse. And Bjartni, which is uh, a person, Sonar Thera, who was their son, Okvar Epnelegr Mother, and he was a promising young man. So if, if you were to write that in modern Icelandic, um, it'd be exactly the same. 
What do your students tell you that come to, to you to learn Old Norse? I mean, other than maybe wanting to be, you know, a scholar in the language or something. I mean, why, why are people drawn to this language? Oh, you know what? It's really interesting. Um, I, I um, you know, I've been, I live in Iceland. Uh, and so I was back at UCLA and, and they wanted me to give a course in Old Norse. I did. And uh, without even advertising it, you know, it was just right last minute, 12 people showed up and um, three were Chinese. Uh, <laughs> and um, people just just sort of are interested in it. It's, it's, it's known to be an interesting language. And then there's people like, I asked him, I said, what are you doing here? You know, what, this is uh, supposedly obscure. And it turns out it's not obscure at all. I mean, it's far more than, than, than people show up for the modern Scandinavian languages. Um, Vikings, history, language, interest, that's a good, that's a nice equation, right? That's a good math equation right there. I mean, yeah, yeah. that right? As CJ and I have talked about this. I mean, we're going we, to, we'll always be part of the backdrop of this podcast because we're about the Viking age. And it's like, what on earth is the interest in Vikings? It is perpetual and deep. And it's just, it doesn't seem to die off at all. People just really like we them. Like them. Yeah, yeah. Strange. <laughs> I mean, that's actually, interesting. go ahead, CJ. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, since we had that discussion and, and, you know, on the topic of the popularity of the Vikings, I am doing a deep dive on the ancient Celts, just for giggles, because uh, first of all, it pertains to the writing that I do, but also it's just a, it's just fascinating a topic of, alongside the Vikings. And through that, through that, I'm, I'm reading a book right now. I can't remember the title or the author, which is probably not good, but um, I, I'm reading through about the, the, the ancient Celts and in the in the starting about the 17th and 18th centuries there was a, a major interest in Europe toward the ancient Celts and part of this book is putting into question whether the word Celt and the idea of the Celts is even valid because it's it, a lot of it is just fictitious you know because of the Romans the Greeks etc like we don't it, it's a it's a pretty complicated premise but a lot of the things that made the Celts interesting, like feuding and feasting, and are things that are applied to. So there, I think there's just a human interest in these more primitive cultures that have these social bonds, social institutions, almost if you will, surrounding. You know that are that that the Vikings really embody the best of of any historical population that we have, uh, whether just justified or not because so there's so much mythology that's cropped up around them but yeah as i just thought it was interesting i was listening to you know what made the celts popular back in the 18th and 19th centuries and i was like those are all the exact same things we were talking about for the vikings so this is not it's the vikings being popular isn't new <laughs> we just cultures will just you know each different era of hum of 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 modernity if you want to call it kind of picks and chooses who their favorites are and vikings just happen to be the the popular thing du jour which unfortunately kind of ties into i remember back in 2011 i just finished my first manuscript and we went to this movie i don't even remember what movie but the big popular thing back then was vampires and i i remember looking at my ex-wife at the time and and I was just like, you know, Vikings are next. They're going to be popular next. And <laughs> you know it. 
2013, the History Channel launches that TV show, and boom! <laughs> I know. Twelve years later, and we're still doing it. So. <laughs> yes, I have that. I know. I've told CJ this before too. I mean, I, I've been teaching Viking history uh, here at a local community college since 2015, but it's a class I created from thin air because I'm a medievalist historian by training and northern europe in particular and i knew the vikings were interesting and my own scandinavian background and everything and you know i tried to propose this class to be added as a brand new class and i ran into quite a bit of resistance from administration you know they just they just thought it was an upper division topic and you know not suited to you know a, a community college audience and they just, they just thought it was obscure and just didn't understand it and and i fought that tooth and nail and got that class into the catalog and lo and behold this class is like the first class to fill up every single term right i mean it's just yeah. the interest in vikings it just keeps going so I mean, and actually for me, I mean, probably maybe last question for me is in a broader sense, it does beg the question of, um, in the in, in, where we've been talking a lot about Iceland, of course, because that's your area that you've spent the most time and stuff, but just, you know, the Vikings in general across Scandinavia, I mean, are they special? I mean, for, for the context of the period of time in which they lived, are they unique? I'll tell you, the, the, the Vikings uh, have one thing, and th this is now all Scandinavian and whatnot, and um, uh, is that they had ships. And other people had ships also very quickly, after, but they were the first to actually put it all together, to put the, um, what they call clinker bill, which I know you know about, of course, which is that the instead of putting the uh, side uh, boards of a ship, which are called strakes, one on top of each other with with ribs and make like a Mediterranean ship, which is a very strong, and uh, it doesn't give um, the, they're called strakes, overlap. And then you have these nails through that so that the Viking ship bends as it goes over. And they put the, the sail on top and that comes around 750. And that's when the Viking age really begins. So um, the Vikings militarily didn't have anything special. They had the ship for surprise. They had the ship to uh, allow them to go widely in the world, all the way from the North American continent down through the Mediterranean into the Caspian Sea and whatnot, down rivers. Um, that is what made the Vikings and the element of surprise that comes with ships. So, um, and then being able to transport armies. It, one of the great things is, is no matter how many uh, Viking raids you have, it's, we don't have much, any in, uh, information on England attacking uh, until, until later when you have a Viking king in England. Um, so the continent doesn't really go back and, and attack with ships. The Vikings use their ships. That's, to me at least, that's their uh, originality. I mean, when you think, uh, yeah, they think about the, in the Baltic, Sweden uh, especially goes down the rivers of Russia and they go down Volga and the Dnieper and whatnot. They go through the Black Sea, they get to Constantinople, <clears throat> then they're in the Mediterranean. They go down the Volga and they come to the Caspian Sea and they go out the Silk Route 
gets down to the Arab land, it's it's the ships that allow them to do this sort of thing. Right, that shallow draft that allowed them to go up river systems. Yep. Somewhere yeah. al along the way, they figured out how to put down a keel, which gave them bigger sails because there's a seventh century iteration of the long ship that had a sail that was just too small to make it ocean going. Uh, I, I've right. there, a there's of... a certain minute, uh, uh, a minute when somebody says, ah, that's it, you know, yeah. and that changed everything. Then then the navigational skills begin. Right. And it gave them access to the whole the whole world. And they had uh, a, the type of culture that make, made them inherently expansionist as well. I mean, even before they figured out how to do the how to put the keel down and have a bigger sail uh we have evidence that gotlanders were going to the you know the the eastern shores of the baltic right so um kind of what's now estonia latvia so they were already moving it's just the ship gave them the ability to move faster more efficiently and also to come back because you know their ancestors left and then didn't come back right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's funny yeah. that the ship let's, let's see if i can pull it up here terry you're reading this this is this is my the first book in my series. I just started last night. Yeah, tell yeah. us about this. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, The Lords of the Wind is the first in the series. There's three now. It's about the, the Viking Hasting. I use the French spelling Hasting because the book's translated in French. And I don't know, I'm, I'm French, so I use, just use that. Plus the people who wrote it down, they wrote it down in like 12 different ways. So I thought Hasting would be as good of a spelling as any of the others. Um, but in the second chapter is when he first ends up on a, on a ship. He's about 12 years old. And his ship captain, a man named Aleph, is uh, actually, I love the name of the ship too, Sail Horse, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but when he's teaching him how to sail, he basically, he's the, and I remember, so where I got inspiration for this was when I was a kid, my grandfather, you know, was like, here's how you sail. And the first thing he did was teach me how to tie knots. And I was notoriously terrible at it. And so my character, of course, is notoriously terrible at it. So he's fiddling with ropes. And then Aleph tells him, how important it is he says you know quote a true viking is a seafarer first and a warrior second his strength is his ship not his sword or axe and so it's the the emphasis on you need to know how to use this because this is this is your life right because it's and we know from the early raids they you know they weren't particularly vicious or i mean they were vicious but they weren't particularly effective warriors right if they if they came across a, a, a an ar an actual organized say frankish army it was game over for them. So they just, you know, but what the ships allowed them to do was to just pack up and leave very quickly, right? There's uh, the two lives of Charlemagne, that that lovely passage where Charlemagne's somewhere in southwestern France. And we're not sure if this is a real story or not, but it's it's still, it, it demonstrates an awareness the Franks had for this phenomenon where Vikings went to attack this, this town. Charlemagne happened to be there. As soon as they figured this out, they turned tail and ran and Charlemagne sent ships after them, but they just couldn't keep up. Right. And they just vanished. But then that's when Charlemagne does that dramatic. I love the scene where he does the dramatic looking out the window. I'm <laughs> sick at heart, you know, like the whole I'm sick at heart as to what these savages are going to do to my children. You know, he was like, I'm not afraid for me. I kick their butts. But my children, you know, and his children did end up being rather incompetent as <laughs> in regards to the Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> they they began their incompetence just at the time the Vikings are ramping up being Vikings and really <laughs> really hammering those people. I, I yeah, they were paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, was that just I, I was going I'm sorry, I was just gonna add that you know Charlemagne uh was very effective. Uh, with the coast, uh, he had squadrons of cavalry all along the coast that could rapidly 
um, react to the Vikings, and he had ships and stuff like that, um, coastal ships and whatnot. So, and yeah, you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, they were they were lying in wait, right? The they were kind of hitting the coast for a while. Well, that's why I just put out that article that just it's the, a summary of all my thoughts on all this idea of the connection with salt and you know it was it a, a motivating factor for the Vikings to go all the way to France. So early in the Viking Age, right? The so-called Viking Age, which is when we read the historical raids, 793 Lindisfarne, 795 Iona, 799 Normandy, right? Saint-Philbert off the coast of France. Like, why did they go that far right away? Um, so that's kind of this question that I, I've been, you know, looking looking to answer for a long time. Uh, but part of that is uh, they they really hung around just the coastlines for that for the first 30 years. And the second, the second there was uh, a rebellion you know within the carolingian empire they went inland like right mm -hmm. away and so they knew like they is almost like they were just kind of kind of like you know birds circling over <laughs> a dying animal yeah. right and they're like it's just, just a matter of time waiting for yeah. any sign of weakness to exploit yeah yeah and they were there just and they were going there frequently like we know from the island from the the monastery Saint they wrote about the you know quote unquote frequent and persistent raids uh while redundant it tells us just you know and that was 819 right just them getting attacked every single spring and summer so they it's not so the the vikings were there they were very present as the carolingians were essentially falling apart uh and what's fun about my character that i have in the books uh, hasting he shows up in the uh, annals of saint burton in like 857 to broker a deal between the Bretons and the Franks, right? And it's like, so now he's a, now he's a diplomat. Like <laughs> they, they were, they got, they got very involved in everything. So it's, it's, it is fascinating how, how they, they really went around and just were, were very intelligent about how they approached each different territory that they went to and played this, this uh, astute game of politics to really maximize the benefit to them. Opportunism. This is what we yeah. right? Yeah, that's it. I, I think that's that that really sums up uh, opportunity is is where the Vikings um and 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 also you should remember they were also traders. Uh the same guys who would uh if you were asleep uh, might kill you were uh, prepared to trade if uh you know the guards were um ready and whatnot and they would sail in and trade and also uh one has to remember that the viking age and i i think you adrian you hit on it is that um the different regions often saw an advantage in the vikings pillaging and plundering their opponents yeah what mm -hmm. is that line? Better the what? The friend of my enemy is my enemy. or no what? What is that? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you can imagine one 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 feudal lord who hates the next feudal lord uh, getting news that the Vikings have just burned him his uh, village or whatever down to the ground, and thinking, hmm, that's a nice opportunity. <laughs> yeah, all the timing was right. That's the so I'm working on book four of the of this series. I'm actually going to make it book one of a new series. But it takes place in 847, which is when the Bretons actually formally declare themselves independent from the Frankish Empire. And the second they do that, boom, Vikings show up <laughs> and win three successive battles and then demand a Danegeld, right? 
<laughs> so it's they just they were they were there and they knew right like oh you guys are weak now we're coming to get you <laughs> well and they'd already achieved paris right in 8 45 so it's like let's just keep rolling let's just yeah, yeah, yeah. let's just keep going with it well yeah. just when are you going back to iceland uh i was planning to go back in may um we're thinking of doing something this summer so we'll we'll see what's going on uh i ended up i i was supposed to be there this winter and you know i'm still a professor at the university in iceland but um i started teaching a course in archaeology here at ucla again so oh nice nice yeah it was fun well, so, I mean, we've got what, about an hour in, and so I want to be respectful of your time. But um, like I mentioned at the beginning, we'll post everything in the description of the show here so people can check out your website and your books and the map site if they want to see what, what's going on there with the excavations uh, in Iceland. But um, is there anything else you want to like share or anything that we kind of wrap it up? No, I'm, you know, I think that's it. I, um, you know, love bringing people to the, the website and, you know, the archaeology is my joy. So, yeah. Nice. Well, hopefully someday yeah. I'll be in Iceland the same time you are. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. And um, are you planning to be there this summer? And what? Uh, I'm not sure if this summer because we're going to Denmark, but I'll probably go back. I don't know, maybe in the fall. I mean, I go every year, uh, and I was just there. Well, you know, because I mean, we were talking on the phone when I was there, so I was just there in March. But um, we'll see. I, I have to think about that timing-wise. What are you going to do in Denmark? Um, well, so my husband and I have a, an 80 acre Christmas tree farm and he's so he's big in that and Denmark is a huge Christmas tree growing region um, for Europe and they have a very, very large growers conference um, in <laughs> So we're going to a, a Christmas tree growers conference in uh, just outside of Odense and then okay. which David's excited about right because he's like that's my hometown. Um, and then, uh, and then, well, I haven't been to Denmark yet. So then we're going to go and see a bunch of, you know, so we'll go out to yelling. Uh, I want to go up to, uh, uh, Lindholm Hoosier and see the, the ship settings. The oh yeah. That's great. That's great. And I excavated around there once. Oh, cool. Not, yeah. Yeah. Up on yeah, the tip there. And I'll go to Roskilde and see the ship museum and stuff. And so, yeah, just get my Viking on over there. All right. You know, David, David speaks a dialect, a Funska, yeah. which, and he's, he's great at it. It really is terrific. Yeah, yeah. There's an, yeah. the island of Fun. Fun yeah, so exactly. That, that's where, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where the conference is, actually. So uh, we'll be out there as well. But uh, anyway, well, thank you so much for coming. This has just been a real joy. Yes, thank okay, you. Okay, yeah, it was fun. And nice to meet you, Adrian. <laughs> That was great. To, great chat and really interesting discussion. Uh, just to reiterate for everybody, I am perusing the site right now. So all the books to learn Old Norse are at oldnorse.org. Oldnorse.org. I don't think we said that uh, before, but it's got yep. everything yeah, on I'd, there. I'd and, appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be great. And I think that's a great resource for those interested in picking up the language of the Vikings. Yeah. Speak like a Viking. Speak like a Viking. That sounds like a cool thing to do. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody have a good day. See you guys. Thanks, Jesse. Bye bye. Yep.